They sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned." Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Good Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. And as we enter into a time of meditation and reflection and study of your word, we ask you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Uh, Fill me particularly with your spirit and strengthen me that I might uh, deliver these things and speak of them uh, articulately, that that we might have hearing and understanding. Father, uh, guide us and deliver us from all distraction, deliver us from all temptation. Deliver us from all anxieties that would prevent us from hearing your voice today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, in uh, the introduction to the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race falls about the devils. One error is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that is the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And he's right. There are two equal and opposite errors when it comes to understanding the work of the devil and of unclean spirits and demons. One is to deny their existence. One is to be obsessed with them to the point of distraction. And we've known people on both ends of the spectrum. We've known the modern materialist who believes that all of the healings and the miracles and the exorcisms of the Bible were at best the attempts of poor, ignorant, benighted people to explain natural phenomena. 
And so the best they could do when they saw someone with mental illness or they saw something plagued with some distress, the best they could do was say, oh, he must be possessed by demons. And it's our job then, if we're to read the Bible, to weed through the myth and the legend and the pre-scientific ignorance to get to the truth, whatever truth remains. Because, of course, they assume there is no such thing as demons or evil spirits at all. That's one error, and, and we are familiar with that error, and we've encountered it, encountered it. The other error, according to Lewis, is to have this excessive and unhealthy interest in demons, an interest that is uninfluenced by the reign of the Lord Jesus over all things, that doesn't take into account his victory over Satan at the cross and through the grave and the resurrection. There are some, and you've known these folks, who find a demon lurking around every corner and under every rock. My car didn't start this morning. Well, you know, the devil's trying to get me today. You know, I've got a cold. Well, the, the devil's trying to hold me back. Well, Maybe, I don't want to deny the very close, ever-present reality of the spiritual world and its intersection with the world that we see. But at the same time, we don't live or act as if the devil has all of the same attributes as God. Satan is not everywhere. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. Satan is not the evil mirror image of God. That Satan is not the other half of, of God, and he's the evil representation, and God is the good representation. That is absolutely wrong and false. In fact, the description Peter gives of him is pretty pathetic, actually. When Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That, that's, that's not a big compliment to the power of the devil. He's just like an old lion pacing back and forth, looking to pick off a straggler. But Peter says, if you're sober and you're vigilant, you won't be his prey. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, he doesn't have this endless tenacity. He can be resisted. Uh, so we don't give Satan more credit than he deserves. And we don't become obsessed with this insatiable curiosity when it comes to the demonic. God has not given us all the answers to all of our questions. And there are some questions that pop up in our text today that I simply, if you ask me why this and why that, I don't have an answer for you. And I wonder if God shrouds some things in mystery so that we don't develop an even greater unhealthy curiosity in them, perhaps. And, and I'm not sure. But we do affirm and we do believe what God has said clearly, what he has said to us. And we're, and we're very cautious about declaring anything more than that. This very tension comes to us today whenever we deal with passages like the one in front of us. One, one temptation might just be to write off this man's infirmity as well. He, was, he had some sort of mental illness and demon possession was just the best way they had to describe it. No, it's called demon possession. The other temptation is to obsess about the mechanics of the demon possession and actually allow it to distract us from what Jesus is doing here. What we do know is this. Here are some things that we do know. We don't see demons and demon possession in the Old Testament, do we? We, we don't see it. You don't see demon-possessed people in the Hebrew scriptures. There are six references that I can find to demons and evil spirits in the Old Testament.
And they're all related to commandments regarding idol worship and, and pagan sacrifices. So in other words, in the, in the Old Testament, we have these different references that show us that people who sacrifice to idols are sacrificing to evil spirits. They're sacrificing to demons. And Paul references that in 1 Corinthians when he goes into his discussion about meat offered to idols. But you don't see demons all over the Old Testament like you do in the Gospels. When Jesus comes to Israel and when Jesus begins his ministry, he finds demons there. Now, you might expect to find demons among the pagans. If you go to the temple of Zeus, you might expect to find demon-possessed people there. But Jesus finds them in the synagogues. That's profound. And, And presumably, they're getting along just fine until Jesus shows up. What does this abundance of demonic activity in the Gospels indicate? Is it that the demons are just being revealed for the first time in the presence of Jesus? Or is Satan stirring up his activity and turning it up a a notch as as Jesus and, and the kingdom comes in? It's probably a little bit of both. Jesus is exposing and revealing the works of darkness. And at the same time, Satan appears to Jesus in person. Satan is ramping up his activity Uh, knowing what is coming with the incarnate uh, Savior. So what it indicates to Israel, however, that when Jesus comes and he finds demons in the synagogues, what it shows to Israel is that they don't have to go looking far for unclean evil spirits. They're all convinced that the evil, the sickness, the corruption is out there. All the bad influences of the Romans and the Greeks and the pagans and the idolaters, And sure, it is out there, but when Jesus comes, it's revealed to them that the corruption is right under their noses. The demonic activity is in their synagogues. Their synagogues and their communities are not immune. Now, this is a helpful perspective for us too. We we tend to think that all the corruption, all the evil, all the bad influences are out there somewhere, out there in the culture, out there in Hollywood, and we protect ourselves and our families from the stuff out there. Well, yes, those corruptions are out there, and many of them we can't do a lot to change on our own. But what we need to be aware of and vigilant over is the corruption in here, among us, in our community, in our homes, in our hearts. And see, when Jesus draws near to Israel, the demons start to bubble up to the surface, and he casts them out, and he banishes them, and he frees those under their dominion. But what he shows is, you know what, here's where the problem starts. Here's where the problem lies. The the real enemy is among you, not somewhere out there. Now here in Luke, Jesus leaves the land of the Jews to go across the Sea of Galilee to a different country. And as soon as he gets out of the boat, a man confronts him. He's, he's confronted with this wreck of a human life, a man under the complete domination and control of an army of demons, a, a man who is as unclean and as cut off from the right worship of God as he could possibly be. This man lives in a country, obviously, that keeps pigs. Now, bacon is not on the menu for any faithful Jew. He's in this unclean land with an unclean people who keep unclean animals. What's more, he lives in a graveyard. 
Graveyards are places of contamination. For, for a Jew, contact with the dead or contact with graves made you unclean. Now, you could be purified and you would be clean again in seven days. But if you didn't go through the cleansing ritual, you were cut off from Israel. This man lives among the dead bodies. He is never clean. He is a living corpse. This country, the country of the Gadarenes that Jesus visits was the home of the Decapolis or the 10 cities. These cities were conquered by Rome in 63 BC and then they were reestablished as showcase cities of all of the values, everything that was treasured in Hellenistic culture. The Romans quartered their legions of troops there and had utterly controlled the area for this past half century to three quarters of a century. This area had lost all of its own identity. And, and, and these cities had become 10 little colonies of Rome. So, so this man that Jesus comes to is as conquered and as unclean as he could be. He is conquered by the powers that have taken over his country, the Roman legions, and he's totally possessed by a legion of demons that have taken over his body and soul. When Jesus asks him, what is your name? He says, legion. Now, a legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers, 6,000 soldiers in a legion. So does this mean that he had 6,000 demons uh, inside his raging in his heart and his mind and his body? Or or does he simply mean that I've got a whole army, a whole host of demons? How is it that that many demons could attack a man? Why would so many demons focus on one man? Couldn't one demon do the job? Why, why such a concentration? There's a question I don't have an answer to. But Jesus tells a parable about someone who is, who is relieved of the dominion of seven demons. And then later Jesus uh, casts seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. So it looks like somebody would have their hands full with one demon. But this man may have thousands And these demons had apparently given him some kind of extraordinary strength. People bind him with shackles and chains, but he breaks out of them and he wanders around naked, isolated. Mark's gospel tells us that he cut himself with stones. It likes he stones himself. He was self-destructive. He tears his flesh. In town, you can imagine they hear him at night out there in the graves crying and ranting. So when Jesus confronts him, he begs Jesus, do not torment me. He's had enough torment. He's had enough torture. Don't don't add to my distress. And the demons beg Jesus to send them into the pigs who are feeding near the mountains. Again, questions. Where do other demons go when they get cast out? And why do these demons want to be embodied with these pigs? Are other animals ever embodied by demons. Well, if you've ever owned a cat, you know, yes, in fact, (laughs) other animals are um, embodied by, I'm joking, forgive me, I I repent, I confess. You can tell when my wife's not here, I can make jokes like that and I don't get in trouble. Um, Well, why why do these animals feel like they need to, I mean, why do these demons feel like they have to go possess or be embodied by an animal, even even if it is a pig? What's going on there? Again, questions I don't necessarily have answers to. Maybe you do. That's something to think about. But when Jesus 
uh, consents to this and allows the demons to leave this man and enter the pigs, it demonstrates to everybody exactly what's going on in this man's head and heart and soul. Here's a herd of pigs who when the demons enter, they go crazy and they throw themselves. They race down the, the, the landing into the water. They throw themselves into the sea where they drown. This insane, violent herd of demon pigs go stampeding toward the sea. And there we see, that's a picture. That's exactly what's going on inside this man this whole time. And the next time we see the young man, he's in his right mind and he is clothed. After Jesus casts the demons out of him, everything is set right. You see there how Jesus turns everything the right way and puts it like it's supposed to be. At first he had many demons. At the end, all the demons are gone. First he had no clothes. At the end we see him clothed. First he doesn't live in the house. He lives in the tombs. Jesus says, return to your house. First he fell down and he shouted. Now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. First he's out of control. Now he is at peace. The transformation is holistic. The whole man has been saved, not just some part of him. The whole man, all of his faculties, and his appearance radiates his sanity, his wholeness, and his salvation. He wants to join Jesus now. As you can imagine, you'd want to. Boy, this man has changed my life completely. But Jesus tells him instead, go home. And tell everyone what has happened. Tell them what the Lord has done. Jesus says, go tell them what God has done for you. And then then what do we read? He went and told what great things Jesus had done for him. And he didn't disobey. Jesus says, go tell them what God has done for you. And he goes out and tells them what Jesus has done for you. And it's one of those he that has ears let him hear kind of moments. Yes, Jesus is God. And, and they should have been picking up on this. Jesus' action here is pretty symbolic. What a, what a conquered people wanted more than anything was for the Romans to be pushed back into the Mediterranean Sea. For them, Rome was the problem. Rome was the demon. And as far as the Jews were concerned, Rome was unclean. Rome was a nation of pigs. And the best thing for Rome to do was to go back into the sea that they came out of. But Jesus doesn't come to fight the Romans. That's not Israel's problem. Their problem isn't the Romans. Their problem is that they're under the rule of forces they cannot see that are much more dangerous than the forces they can see. And so Jesus drives these demons back into the very sea that he just calmed. Remember last week he calmed the sea and now he's driving these demons into the sea. Jesus, in doing this, he's demonstrating his complete and absolute command over all of creation, seen and unseen, created and and spiritual, physical and spiritual. This is God's world, every bit of it, and Jesus reigns over all of it, over the waters, over the demons, over everything, every bit of it. Jesus is king over all. I want to think now for just a few minutes about the townspeople and their response to the healing of this man. They aren't happy at all. But, but it doesn't look like it's an economic concern. It, sure, whoever lost the pigs, however many there were, they're going to be angry. 
But that's not what's brought up here in the text. In fact, verse 37, the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. When Jesus heals in Jewish lands, they're not seized with great fear. When Jesus heals in Jewish lands, they are appreciative of the healing. Now, they get offended when he forgives sins. They get offended when he claims to be the fulfillment of prophecy. But they're happy to have the healings. Now, Jesus goes to Gentile territory. The people are terrified by this turn of events. And it appears that their world has been turned upside down now that this town demoniac has been delivered. What's going on here? What is the relationship between this town and this man? Why are they so upset that he's been healed? It seems to me it is similar to what happens in families where there's a, a, an alcoholic or a drug-addicted parent. Be, bear with me for just a minute. W- walk through this. When, when, there is a, when there is a member of the family who is addicted to something, alcohol or, or a drug, uh, the whole family learns how to cope with this one person's failure and shortcomings. They, they develop all kinds of mechanisms to cover for this person, to excuse them, or just to live with the addict. All their responses and all their relationships are defined by the way they handle the problem person. And, and this person at the same time carries all of the guilt and all of the shame of the family. Th- that's the trade-off. I put up with you acting this way, and I cope, but at the same time, you have to bear all of the shame and the guilt uh, of all the problems in the family. You're the, pro- you're the reason we have all these problems. You are the source of all of our shame and all of our blame. It's, it's so easy to assign blame. This person who, is, who has this problem is obviously at fault for everything that goes wrong. Everything bad that ever happens to us, it's his fault. And what happens when, say, dad who is addicted or dad who is an alcoholic, what happens when dad gets help? What happens when dad is clean and sober, clothed and in his right mind? Well, the family falls apart at that point. That is, without Jesus, without the church, without a lot of help and counsel, what happens when dad gets sober is that the family disintegrates. Why is that? Well, all of the things that we used to blame on dad and all of the excuses that we used to make because of dad are exposed now. And we don't know how to operate in this new way. We have to learn how to have a new identity apart from the drunkenness. And that, in many cases, is too much to ask for. This is called scapegoating. And and you know this. You've you've heard this term before and you've used it. (coughs) Pardon me. That is, heaping up all the anxieties and all the blame and all the shame of one group of people onto another and identifying that person or that group of people as the reason for all of your ills. Now, the question I bring to this text is, is that's what is happening in this community? Has the city defined themselves in contrast to this one broken person? You, you look at it, there's kind of a liturgy to the way they handle him before Jesus came. What do they say? Verse 36, it, the demon had often seized him 
And, and, and he was kept under guard, bound with shackles and chains, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. This happened often. There's this order. They, they take a hold of him. They keep him under guard. They bind him with chains and shackles until he breaks the bonds. He's driven into the wilderness until they have to go get him again. They bring him back. They keep him under guard. They put him in shackles and chains, and then he breaks them, and he goes back out. And there's this whole routine, and you can imagine there was kind of a drama to the way that they go get him and bring him back and capture him and he gets loose again. There, there, there's a kind of, a, of excitement to the whole procedure. You can imagine everybody playing their roles. Boys get to watch and get trained for when it's their turn to take and guard and shackle the crazy demon man. Now he's healed. Jesus has healed him and all of that's, all of that's gone away. This is a significant piece of their local identity, it appears, and it's gone. Now, who gets the blame when the weather is bad? Who gets the blame when the crops fail, when the fishing is poor? Who gets the blame when there are sicknesses and miscarriages and livestock are killed by wild animals? How do the parents keep the kids in line? They used to tell them stories about the crazy demon man who would get them if they didn't obey. But now Jesus shows up and he strips away all their superstitions. He takes away their scapegoat. And they're terrified because now they have to deal with reality. René Girard was a French Christian philosopher. He wrote that fascinating and foundational book titled The Scapegoat. And he, he begins with, antiquity and he begins with ancient man and he demonstrates how pagan societies project all of their fears and all of their evils and shame onto one person or a race of people or a class of people and just like the scapegoat of the bible where you lay your hands on the goat the animal and all the sins are transferred and the animals led away out of the out of the camp or, or out of the city so just like that they end up putting all of their shame and guilt and anxieties on a person or a class of people, and then they, they, they banish them or they sacrifice them or they publicly humiliate them as a way of dealing with their own conflict and guilt. A, a mob mentality takes over where the whole society gangs up on other weaker members and they believe that their problems are solved by purging the undesirables. They think that by doing this, peace will be restored. But of course, they're never satisfied. They always have to go looking for the next scapegoat. Amazing. That doesn't work, does it? You pile up all of your guilt and shame and anxiety on a person, you pillory them, and you, you execute them or you sacrifice them, and you turn around the next day, and you've still got all the same problems. Well, that didn't work. So who's the next scapegoat? Who is the next person that we go after? Now, I mentioned Gerard because he gives lots of examples from history and legend, but but just think of angry villagers chasing Frankenstein's monster with, with pitchforks and torches. Just think of that image. And that's repeated itself over and over and over and over throughout history. For a more serious example, think of the way that the Jews were treated throughout Europe over the past century in Russia and Europe. Those people, we, we name a people, we name a class of people, and those people are everything that's wrong with our culture. And if, if, if we just mistreat and destroy them, we can purify ourselves. They, they bear our shame, and so we have to get rid of them. 
So Gerard spends a whole chapter in his book discussing this man that we read about in Luke's gospel this morning. Gerard writes that the demon-possessed man was abused not only by demons, but by the mob, such that the demons could even be imitating the abuse inflicted upon him by the people. There's a unity and a cooperation between the people and the demons. And when the mob of demons is sent hurtling into the sea, openly illustrating the herd mentality of the pigs, the the victim is then left standing. And we see there Jesus's judgment on the angry mob. Now, everyone's confused and upset and fearful because that's not the way the story is supposed to go. Usually it's the victim that's sent over the cliff and the mob is satisfied. Here, the mob has been sent over the cliff and the victim is restored. Jesus has turned this all inside out. And Jesus ultimately turns it all inside out at the cross. Jesus himself is going to be the victim of an angry mob. Jesus will be the scapegoat. Just like this man, Jesus is going to end up naked, isolated, outside of town, in a tomb, and his flesh is going to be torn. Jesus is going to take this man's place. And Jesus, by doing that, invalidates scapegoating forever. Jesus himself becomes the innocent victim, the innocent scapegoat. Whatever wrong the Jews are think that they're, thinking that they're purging by, by, by yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, whatever corruption they think they're ridding themselves up by crucifying Jesus, whatever they hope they'll be carried away is invalidated by the fact that Jesus is ultimately innocent. They think he's the corruption, he's what's wrong, but God overturns the verdict and says, no, in fact, Jesus is pure, holy, he's obedient. God overturns the verdict by resurrecting him to life, by bringing him to sit at his right hand, and then God destroys Jerusalem and the temple, just as Jesus said. Now, the only atonement and the only sacrifice for sin is Jesus. Now we don't deal with our sins by projecting our faults and shame on other people. At least we don't do that if we know the Savior. But the sad and terrible fact is we do this all the time. We're we're not so enlightened, we're not so evolved that we have stopped scapegoating as people, as families, as cultures. As a culture, we've got this down to to a science Every week, the media parades a new scapegoat in front of us. You turn on the news to find, okay, who who am I supposed to be outraged at today? I've got to be angry at something. I've got to be terrified about something. So so what is it going to be today? Who am I supposed to hate now? Who am I supposed to be afraid of? Just this past week, as as I was studying and I was pulling this together, a friend of mine was discussing Gerard. And he pointed to a steady stream of public scapegoats over the last few weeks. This past week, who was it? It was an almost washed up quarterback that nobody really cared about until he did something that people didn't like. And I don't care if you like it or not. I'm asking, why do we have to feel anything about what he did or didn't do? Why am I being asked to have an opinion about it? He's just a public scapegoat. Again, before that, it was Ryan Lochte. Remember the week before that? Have you forgotten how outraged we all were at at a swimmer? 
And then, and then before that, it was the inattentive parents that their two-year-old child was attacked by an alligator at Disney World. Those terrible, awful parents. And before that, the other worst parents in the world who let their child wander into a gorilla enclosure. And, and you can keep going back. There's always this public outrage and public uh, pillaring of people. When you don't know the story. We don't know the details. We don't know the people. And yet we're always being asked to be outraged and angered. You've got to have an opinion. And oh, by the way, if your opinion about this completely irrelevant person conflicts with my opinion about this completely irrelevant person, then you and I have an issue. And now we've got to fight about it because we're all just part of this angry mob with pitchforks and torches looking for our next scapegoat. And we forget the previous scapegoats because there's always a new one to take the other's place. And we never use up all of our rage fuel. We've always got more to use. You see this publicly, but you also see it in families. Teenagers are terrible at this. Teenagers are vicious and cruel and mean with this stuff. You, you, um, you separate a person who's different and weird for some reason, and then, and then the, the, whole, the whole community, the whole group uh, pours out their, their vitriol and their disgust by this one person, and they spread lies and rumors about that person. You see it in churches and schools. You see it in Christian ministries and organizations. I've seen it in denominations. We need to point this out and be conscious that this happens because we're guilty of it. We all think our problems are the fault of that guy, whoever he is, or that girl, whoever she is. And if, if we could just get rid of that guy, if we could at least pillory that guy, you know, throw tomatoes at him, make him feel really ashamed, then all of my problems would disappear because he's my problem. I, I don't have any sins. He's my problem. We call for his head. We have a thirst for his blood. Get rid of that guy. But let's say we do get rid of that guy. Guess what? Our problems don't go away. So we start looking for the next guy to blame. Now, whoever that is, that guy may have his problems, but he doesn't bear the weight and shame and guilt of the whole community. Because the problems aren't out there. The problems are in here, in my heart, in my affections, in my lack of worship, in my lack of gratitude for all that God has done for me, in my failure to love as Jesus loves, in my failure to forgive as I have been forgiven, in my failure to worship and, and to support the worship and work of the church, to pursue its purity and peace, in my failures. These are my problems. And the only way to deal with these is not to project them onto another, to blame my frustrations and my lack of contentment and my restlessness on another, but to deal with them myself. If we do not humble ourselves, repent, and accept the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the once for all, final, perfect scapegoat, Jesus Christ, if we don't do that, then we will continue the death spiral of scapegoating other people. That's why these people are so terrified. Jesus has turned everything inside out. He's ripped it apart. Everything's disintegrated. Right here in Luke, you've seen Jesus's judgment on cultures that do that. And he illustrates, what are they like? What is the mob like? They're like a herd of angry, raging demon pigs headed for destruction. 
doomed to be hurled into the sea. Don't be an angry mob of demon pigs. Is that, is that the takeaway? Don't, don't be that. Don't follow the herd. Don't gather in grievance. Don't tempt each other towards fear. Embrace the Lord Jesus. Confess your sins and know the peace and the rest that can only be found in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we praise you for our Lord and King and Savior Jesus. We thank you that he still judges and still, uh, and still casts out demons. And we pray that he would cast out and destroy all those things that plague us, that plague ourselves, our families, our community, our church, uh, all, all of these spheres of influence that we have. Father, do not allow us to give in to the herd mentality. Do not allow us to cast our blame and shame on others, but to deal with it before your throne, to confess our sin and to humbly uh, ask for forgiveness. We pray that you would grant us that in this day and give us your Holy Spirit so that we can think clearly about these things. Give us wisdom, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.